Aristi Dick. Yes, we come to our first Richard in the series. Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, Richard Coeur de Lion. And, you know, I think it's safe to say that he is one of those kings that most people have an idea of, an image of them in their mind. You'd say, you know, do you know who Richard the Lionheart was? And they would probably say yes, um, much less so than, say, Henry I or Henry III. And also, I think Richard is probably the king whose public image, his persona, has changed the most during my lifetime. I was born in the 50s, I went to school in the 60s, and we were still living in a time when there was a, a hangover from, from empire. We were still Great Britain. We had won the war. There was a sort of heroic nationalistic spirit, and Richard I has always personified that. And perhaps it's because our views of our own nation have changed so much in my lifetime. But when I was a boy, he was pretty much a hero. There is Richard with his tabard with the cross of St. George on it, his shield with his royal crest of the three lions, sitting astride a great charger with one hand stretched high into the air, clutching a, a broadsword. And that's how he's depicted in the statue of him that stands outside the Houses of Parliament. And that is the only statue of a British monarch that there is outside the Houses of Parliament. So Richard always was viewed as this sort of, as I say, this personification of Great Britain, of United Kingdom, certainly of England, particularly as he has this cross of St. George on him. And I remember reading the Ladybird book about Richard the Lionheart. For those of you who don't know Ladybird books, and actually most people probably today know them through the parodies, um, that were done, the very funny parodies. But the original books were massive when I was a boy. And it was a very simple format. There were these little, nice, collectible hardback books, quite short. And on the left-hand page, you had clear, simple, explanatory text in quite a large font size. And on the right-hand page, you had this beautiful coloured illustration often a, a painting in the historical books but they also did technical books you know how the history of flight and how aeroplanes work that kind of thing but the ones I loved were the history books and the great thing about these books and the great thing for a child is it was very clear they were always the same text on the left a really nice picture on the right that you could lose yourself in looking at the details and once you'd read the book a few times you'd, you'd know the story and just look at the pictures and it presented a very clear safe version of British history. There were no grey areas. It was always, this is what happened, this is the truth, and there's a big, bold colour painting to prove it. It wasn't a nuanced view of history. There was no room for debate um, and, and how different people may have viewed Richard. And it's certainly true that over the centuries, views of Richard have fluctuated. But as I say, in my time as a boy, he was Richard the hero, the hero of England. And I remember vividly there was a, an illustration of him during the Crusades where he fought against Saladin. And he goes to visit Saladin and Saladin very graciously hosts him and they get into a discussion about their swords. Richard has this great heavy sword, the broadsword, and Saladin has this elegant curved razor-sharp scimitar and Richard says 
uh, my sword is superior, look. And he, he hammers it down and smashes through this iron bar. It says, look how strong my sword is. And Saladin throws a piece of silk into the air and swipes at it with his scimitar and cuts it in two and says, ah, but your sword can't do that. Mine is a much more elegant sword. And this, for me, became the sort of personification of the the Western army. And during the Crusades, the Western armies, uh, the European, the Christian armies, were generally just called Franks. Frank became a generic term for someone from Western Europe. So Christian armies were generally made up of French, German and English, and they were called Franks. And they essentially, at the time, they were fighting the Moors, which was a sort of all-purpose name for Muslims. So we will come on to the Crusades later. The Crusades are the, are the dominant, the key part of Richard's life, which is why in some parts of history he's considered to be this great hero and now is considered to be this, this great villain as, as our views on the Crusades have changed. Instead of thinking of it as this great Christian undertaking with these heroic knights going in and fighting for Jesus Christ and freeing the Holy Land from the from the infidels. It is now seen as an imperialistic, brutal invasion of the West into this sophisticated civilization in the East where the knowledge and the science of the Islamic rulers there was so much more advanced than the brutal, violent Franks. So we will come to the Crusades later. Let's start with Richard's birth. He was born in England, in Oxford, in 1157. His father, as we have seen, was Henry I, who had all his problems with Thomas Becket. And at the time of Henry's death, he was actually at war with Richard. Richard had allied himself with Philip, the King of France, to try and carve out some territory for himself and to have power and wealth in his father's lifetime. But Henry dies from um, a stomach ulcer. Richard unexpectedly suddenly finds himself king of England. And the interesting thing about Richard's life is, you know, this could be quite a short episode because he doesn't seem to have been the slightest bit interested in ruling a country. He loved fighting. He loved leading an army, but in terms of the day-to-day nitty-gritty of passing laws and dealing with his people, he had virtually no interest at all. He didn't do anything politically during his lifetime that had any effect at all. As I say, he had he seemed to have no interest in England at all, really. It, they reckon that after his coronation, he spent at the most six months in England until he died. He didn't speak English. He saw himself as a Frenchman, particularly an an Angevin from Anjou. And he reckoned that the way to glory and lasting fame was at the head of an army with a broadsword in his hand. So really his impact on England itself doesn't go much beyond raising taxes. There were two massive tax-raising episodes in his reign. The first is to finance his trip to the Middle East, on the Third Crusade, and the second is to ransom him after he was captured on the way home from the Crusades. These two huge, great money-raising exercises. And beyond that, he seems to have had, as I say, very little impact. 
in England. And like these early English kings, they were much more concerned with what was going on in France, with these battles against their neighbours and the constant to and fro, the constant power struggle with the French king, being Philip in his lifetime. And in order to try and sort these things out, his father, Henry, had betrothed him to Alice, who was one of the daughters of the previous king, King Louis, to form an alliance between the two families. But there is, uh, there is some evidence that Henry actually started an affair with Alice, his putative daughter-in-law, and even perhaps had an illegitimate child with her. So it certainly wasn't a marriage of love between Alice and Richard. And in the end, even though they were betrothed, Richard never actually married her. He, he later on, he married Berengaria, I think that's how you pronounce it, of Navarre. Navarre being the Spanish territory directly to the south of his French territories through the Pyrenees and, and south of the Pyrenees to make an alliance with the ruler of Navarre, who was called Sancho. There has been some speculation, particularly in the modern era, that Richard may have had homosexual tendencies, that he was very close to Philip. There were a couple of occasions where they were reported to have spent the night in bed together, but this was very much um, a diplomatic thing. It was to show their closeness and their friendship. At the time, there was no hint that this might be anything sexual, and the room was probably full of attendance at the time. It was a symbolic gesture. But he did get very close with Philip, and he allied with Philip in the revolt of 1173 against his father, Henry. And when Richard went away on the Third Crusade, he was jointly in charge of the Crusader army with Philip. There was a big uprising through land, which, which actually Richard did try to put down. He was not in favour of any of this, mainly because as a king, he needed the Jews to lend him money. It led to a lot of anti-Jewish violence, and there was a, an infamous massacre in York, for instance, where the Jews took refuge in the local castle and were surrounded and ended up um, taking their own lives rather than be massacred by the locals. So Richard comes to the throne. He is a tall, athletic young man, considerably taller than his younger brother, John, who is considered a little weaselly man. And Richard had this sort of reddish gold hair. So he was this very dramatic, dashing figure. He had always had strong ties with France. He was even knighted by the French King Louis, and as I say, he, he, he did form a close bond with Louis's son, Philip, and the two of them went off to the Crusades together. So, so we may as well get on to the Crusades, as that was the key story in Richard's reign. And he set off on the Third Crusade in 1190, only a year after he had taken the throne. So the first thing he does after becoming king is raise this huge tax, which doesn't go down very well all. It is a very large sum of money that he needs to actually put an army together and lead it and keep it paid and fed on what could be a very, very long campaign. Nobody had any idea. And R Richard, as well as raising taxes, would sell off anything he could. He would sell off bits of land. He would sell off aristocratic titles to people. 
he kind of said, you know, I would I would sell everything. I would sell London itself if it if it would pay for me to go on this glorious military campaign. So the history of the Crusades is very complicated, and I have in my research for doing this series have only really scratched the surface. And you know, I think it is for other proper historians to tell you really what was going on. We've we've seen the first crusade that William the First's son Robert went on, and that was to free Jerusalem from the Muslims. It was successful and the kingdom of Jerusalem was set up. This was a reasonably sized chunk of land on the Mediterranean, encompassing what is today Israel and Palestine and some of the Lebanon. And there were other crusader states established all the way up the west coast of the, well, for want of a better word, the Middle East. So these states were established uh, originally largely protected by French troops, but they became sort of independent kingdoms in their own right with their own rulers and bringing in citizens from all over. But of course, this meant that there was... Uh, as in France, where we see this constant infighting between the different states and counties there, very much the same thing is going on in the Middle East and particularly the area which had been entirely under Muslim rule. The locals, as it were, were never very happy about all this. And in 1144, one of these crusader states, the county of Edessa, which is in modern Turkey, fell to the forces of a Muslim leader called Zengi. Two crusader armies were sent out to liberate Edessa. Both were defeated. And this ultimately led to the fall of Jerusalem, thus prompting a third crusade in 1189. By now, a Kurdish leader called Saladin has risen to dominance in the area, with his power base being in Egypt. And so this leads to the Third Crusade, which is under the joint leadership of Richard, Philip and Frederick Barbarossa. Barbarossa had been this great heroic warrior leading armies. He is the King of Germany, or, or more properly the Holy Roman Emperor, as the rulers there styled themselves. Uh, he had been this very potent, powerful figure. He's now in his 60s, not as strong as he was. And on the way to the crusade, he falls off his horse crossing a river, wearing heavy armour, and drowns. So that is the end of Frederick Barbarossa. Philip and Richard are left as joint commanders. And the first thing they do when they get to the Holy Land is relieve the crucial city of Acre, or Acre, um, which had become the capital of Jerusalem, since Jerusalem itself the city had fallen into Saladin's hands. So they break the siege, free Acre, and are able to use it as their base of operations. And they're pretty successful after that, securing several other cities and city-states, although they're never able to take back Jerusalem. And this all leads to some fairly unpleasant bloodshed and brutality, Several acts which today are viewed as atrocities, such as when Richard took 3,000 hostages after he freed Acre, and rather than keep them as bargaining tools for, for whatever reason, whether it was too much of a risk to try to hold them, he had them all executed. 
Now, this is not unprecedented, but it didn't go down very well, um, obviously, with the Muslim side, but also it didn't go down very well with the Frankish side, who didn't consider it very chivalrous. Uh, you know, actually, there was not a great deal of harmony and unity among the Christians. And the German contingent is now under the leadership of a lesser noble, Leopold of Austria. Philip and Richard are not very happy about this. And when Leopold raises his banner and tries to march alongside Richard and Philip, they grab the banner and chuck it in the moat at Acre. Leopold is furious about this and he goes home taking his German army with him. Following further arguments and infighting, Philip himself goes home, leaving Richard in sole command of the Crusader army. So he is the supreme ruler, the supreme general, the supreme hero, if you like. And certainly that's how he would have been personified at the time of this mighty Crusader army. Neither side is able to secure an ultimate victory. And so Richard and Saladin come to an agreement with the Treaty of Jaffa, which left Saladin in control of Jerusalem, but allowed Christian pilgrims and merchants or whatever to enter the city, to freely come and go. And Richard shores up the defences of the Crusader states before setting off back home. There was not really a settled peace and a tranquil pacifist civilization. There were warring tribes and kingdoms with local rulers constantly trying to defeat other rulers and kill them. This is the period when the Hashashin developed, this organization of assassins hired by people on both sides, Muslim and Christian, to bump off rivals. Uh, at one point, Conrad of Montferrat who is the local ruler in Jerusalem, is killed by a Hashashin. And the theory at the time was that he had been hired by Richard to try and remove any locals who might question his authority. And that, you know, it seems that Richard had a, a plan to try and take over the whole region for himself. Um, he didn't. He did have some rights over some areas. He ended up as the ruler of Cyprus, which they'd used as a base on the way so Richard sets off back from the Holy Land to try to get back to France. He's not very well. He has an illness called Arnaldia at the time. Nobody's quite sure what it was. Uh, there is no sort of modern equivalent, but it was some kind of debilitating fever with swellings. And it dogged him throughout the campaign. And in bad weather, his ship has to put in at Corfu. Uh, but he's desperate to carry on and... He does so with only four attendants. They disguise themselves as Templars and try and get over to the mainland. And it's fascinating that here Richard was at the head of this vast crusader army, the leader of the Christian forces. He's now reduced to having only four men with him. And he's trying to get back through what is essentially enemy territory because he's lost so many friends in the crusade that he can't trust anyone his ship is then wrecked he ends up trying to get up through austria and he's captured by leopold the man who was leading the german army who he and richard offended by chucking his banner in the moat at acre leopold can't believe his luck here is richard trying to sneak through 
his territory. So he captures him and locks him up. And it was a great way to make money at the time. In battles, Rain would be not to try to kill the enemy leaders, but to capture them, the richest and the most aristocratic, because you could then ransom them. And in this case, Leopold was in a position to demand a literal king's ransom. And the ransom he asked for was £100,000. And a pound, the origin of the word pound, meant literally a pound of silver. So £100,000 of silver is a huge amount of money. It is on a par with the amount of money that Richard had to raise to go and fight the Crusades in the first place. And now, within a couple of years, the English people are being asked to cough up again. And this falls to Richard's younger brother, John, who is ruling England in his place. This is wicked Prince John, who is famous and vilified for constantly taxing the English people. But he was taxing them to raise money to save his stupid bloody brother who'd got himself captured coming back from the Crusades. Richard spent a couple of years in captivity. Various romantic myths grew up around this. For instance, the idea that his minstrel Blondel went to find him and Richard and Blondel had supposedly written this song together that they were the only two people who, who knew the song. And, and Richard actually did write a few songs, a couple of which still exist. Uh, I think probably only the lyrics rather than the melody, but, you know, he loved minstrels and singing and feasting and fighting much more than the day-to-day -day business, as I say, of ruling, which he wasn't that bothered about. So this sort of fairy tale grows up that Blondel travels around Europe, stopping outside major castles, and he would sing the first part of the song. And if someone responded with the second part, it must be Richard, because that would be the only person to know this song. And eventually Blondel arrives outside Dernstein Castle, where Richard is in prison. He sings a song and Richard beautifully sings it back. It's a lovely story, but it, it's, it's absolute nonsense, because there was no secret to where Richard was held captivity, because Leopold said, look, I've got him. You want him back, you've got to pay for him. So inevitably, a lot of myths and stories and ballads grew up around Richard, because he was this sort of romantic figure, even though to modernise he, he looks like a bit of a loser. There's one story that in this castle where he's incarcerated in these heavy chains, the daughter of the Duke who's holding him prisoner falls in love with him and the Duke wants to kill Richard and he accidentally lets one of his pet lions from his zoo loose into the castle, into Richard's cell. But Richard has asked and I'm not sure at what point in the story he asked, but he, he asked the princess to give him a whole load of silk scarves, which he wraps around his arm and his hand. And when the lion attacks, Richard thrusts his hand down the lion's throat, grabs its heart and tears it out of his chest. And then when he's brought before the Duke, he takes a great bite out of this heart. So he's literally Richard the Lionheart. That story, like the Blondell story, is inevitably a load of old bollocks. But these are the sort of stories, that, romantic stories, that grew up around Richard. The mundane fact is that John manages to raise the money for the ransom and pays for Richard to be released. But not before John has allied with Philip of France. 
and the two of them uh, sort of hatched this scheme to try to stop Richard from ever returning. Richard had eventually ended up in the hands of the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, and John and Richard offered him a pretty large sum of money to keep Richard locked up. But the dirty deal falls through. As I say, John pays the ransom and Richard marches home triumphant to take his place on the throne. But of course, he returns to the usual unrest that goes on in France, trying to keep this empire together of all these French states. And again, he's back in conflict with Philip. His things aren't very settled with John. He is constantly fighting. I mean, that suits him. He likes to fight. But he's not been more than 10 years on the throne when in one of these conflicts, he is um, fighting against the people of Limousin and this small, fairly insignificant castle, uh, Chaloux and Chabrol. He's besieging this castle. He's already massacred a lot of the local population. And he's prancing around the walls, mocking the citizens inside, telling them what he's going to do to them when a young lad whose family has been killed by Richard takes the opportunity to shoot Richard with his crossbow, fatally wounding him, causing gangrene to set in. Richard is there dying. His mother arrives. He dies in his mother's arms, but not before he summons this young lad, Pierre, to his side. And he says, says this was warfare. You, you did what you had to do. Your family had been killed. My dying wish is to pardon you. You will not be punished for what happened. And this is seen as a great chivalrous act of Richard's. Some of the stories, some of the histories say that amongst Richard's retinue was this famous mercenary uh, leader called Mercadia. And as soon as Richard died, he got hold of Pierre, flayed him alive and hanged him, uh, which is probably what happened. So Richard dies. Interestingly, they bury his entrails in Chaloux, where he died. They take his heart to be buried in Rouen, in Normandy. Normandy being obviously the, very much a big part of Richard's heritage. And his body is buried at the feet of his father in Fontereau Abbey in Anjou. And Richard strongly believed that he was an Angevin first and foremost. And you think, could he not have spared just a little part to be sent and buried in England? Did he not give a toss about England? Did he not care one bit about the fact that he was supposed to be king of England? You know, he, he might have sent a nipple or a big toe or something to be buried in Westminster Abbey, but, but no, nothing. He really didn't seem to care about England, despite the fact that he has become such a symbol of England. And so much of what was associated with him and his life has become part of the sort of English identity and the English royal identity. He adapted as his motto, Dieu et mon droit, God and my right, which is still the motto of the royal family. He adapted as his royal crest, the three lions, the three lions, which even now, you know, they represent England. And famously, the song which is still sung, was, which was written for the Euros, Three Lions on My Shirt, written by David Baddiel and Frank Skinner and, and Ian Brodie, has become a sort of almost a, a second national anthem, or maybe a third one after Rule Britannia, to be sung in this great patriotic way at football matches. And I very vividly recall 
when it all went wrong for England in the Euros with the disastrous penalties. They cut away to Frank Skinner and David Baddiel sitting in the stands and the look of utter devastation on their faces was very poignant because they were celebrating many losses. Obviously, they were upset that England had lost, but they also must have been very upset that, you know, if England had won, this song would have been number one for weeks and would have gone on to make so much money. I mean, they couldn't have known that it would still be sung today. But yes, a double, a double blow for Baddiel and Skinner. And also, it was Richard who came up with the idea of adopting St George as the patron saint of England. St George had nothing to do with England. Um, he was a figure from, from the Middle East, but he had been reasonably warlike. And Richard considered he would be the perfect patron saint Despite also being patron saint of Georgia, Moscow, Portugal, Venice, Ethiopia, Catalonia, and many more places. But anyway, that was the King Richard I I read about in the Ladybird book. And another favourite Ladybird book of mine when I was a boy was the story of Robin Hood. Now, the term Robin Hood or Robin Hood originally just meant an outlaw. It was a kind of all-purpose nickname. And then over the years, many popular ballads and stories grew up around this idea and, and sort of solidified into becoming the figure of Robin Hood. And it wasn't until much later that the tales began to be set in Richard and John's time. And they began to be about this stout Saxon yeoman standing up for the ordinary people against the tyranny of the wicked Norman Prince John, while brave King Richard is away fighting the Crusades, which all works very well. But what of Richard? You know, since those Ladybird book days and the, the, the great moment at the end of the Robin Hood films where Richard comes back from the Crusades and he's this almost sort of godlike figure come back to save England from the tyranny of John, he's now viewed very differently. Stephen Runciman, a historian writing in the 1950s, summed it up, and he wasn't the first to express this, but he said Richard was essentially a bad son, a bad husband, a bad king, but a gallant and splendid soldier. Whether we would now say gallant and splendid, I don't know, but he was certainly a very good soldier. He was a good military leader. He was a good tactician. He was a good fighter himself. But really, we, we do require more of our kings than that. So he died in 1199. He was only 42 years old and he left behind no male heir. He'd had his wife, Berengaria, Berengaria, I don't know how to pronounce it. Anyway, she was with him on the Crusades but perhaps he'd been too busy fighting to do any to get her pregnant. And this meant that his younger brother, John, was able to take the throne. And John was the opposite of Richard in so many ways, as we will see in the next episode. My guest this week is the wonderful Dan Jones, who's written a lot about well, the Plantagenets and, and these parts of history. And most recently has been doing his podcast series. This is History with Dan Jones. And Dan, you've done a whole series on Richard I. We have. We've done a whole season. We're, we're so oh, transatlantic. It's a season. Uh, yeah, we've done a full 12 episodes on Richard. And and within our first season, which was about Henry II of Eleanor of, and Eleanor of Aquitaine, Richard was a big character too. So he's sort of, uh, he's come back to haunt me, having not written about him for about 10 years. And yeah. He's just an amazing character. 
So uh, if you could just sum up those uh, 22 episodes in five minutes. <laughs> um, I'll do my best. But yes, and so so I would say to anyone listening, if you want a proper historian's take on Richard, you'd be better off uh, listening to Dan's podcast, quite frankly. So yeah, this is history with Dan Jones. But I mean, is it Dan? Is it history? I mean, history changes. Uh, views of history change. And views of Richard have changed massively down the centuries, haven't they? Yes, they have. Um, Richard can be quite a difficult character to love. He can be quite an easy character to love if you're if you're just into sword swinging kind of macho testosterone fueled uh, warlord types. And there have been periods where that's been quite in vogue. I think we're now living, Charlie, through a period where that isn't so in vogue. And some of the things that Richard did during his reign are, are pretty hard to stomach uh, for a modern sensibility, um, which is then difficult to square with the fact that certainly during his own lifetime and in his, his own reign, he was one of the most spectacularly successful mm. um, English kings. So you have this this difficulty, quite a distasteful kind of person you really wouldn't want to meet at night in a dark alley, uh, is also one of... It's a bit like... The, I'm sure when you get to Henry V, you'll find the same thing. It's it's a, it's a diffi it's difficult in an age where being a king is, is still quite close to being a warlord, to be an, mm. an admirable monarch in the 21st century. Well, I mean, Henry probably gets away with it because he... He was more confined to smashing up the French, which, which is still, no one's ever, no one's ever still applauded. That, right? <laughs> <laughs> but Richard was a crusader, obviously. I mean, he led an army to the Middle East to essentially attack the Muslims. And our view of the Crusades have changed as much as, I mean, indeed, they've changed alongside our views on Richard. I, that's, that's what I meant by saying, is it history? Is it definitive can it be nailed down? There are two modes of interpretation when you're doing history. The first is, what do these facts mean within their own context? With What is, in, in this case, who is Richard in the world that he occupies? And then there's the level of history, which we, we, we place quite a lot of emphasis on these days, which is how do we feel about this person? <laughs> and you've got to get them in the right balance um, and you've got to get them in the right order as well. The facts are the most important thing. The the contextualization within the time period is almost as important. It's vital to the thing. And then I, I think that what does this mean to us is optional. It's not the most important bit of doing history, but it's something that we, we gravitate towards naturally because part of the interest in studying the past is this sense of it as a conversation between now and then. But that's why history is so fascinating. And that's why it changes in, uh, over the, the generations. Yeah, indeed. And as I say, our, our view on the Crusades uh, has shifted massively. And obviously the, the current consensus is this was a terrible, terrible thing. I hesitate to say, what do you think about the Crusades? But, uh, but I don't know why. We shouldn't be squeamish. What do you think about the Crusades? Don't be squeamish. We okay. can't, can't be squeamish. That's the worst thing. That's the worst thing. Being squeamish and being afraid to talk about things, that's mm. that what really gets you into, into difficulties doing history, isn't it? It's absolutely fine. Let's talk about the Crusades. In Richard's day, in 1187, the loss of Jerusalem to Saladin, 
this is the central episode in Richard's life. And it's strange because it happens thousands of miles away from his stomping ground mm. of Aquitaine, England, Normandy. A gigantic crusader army led by King Guy I. This army was destroyed at the Battle of Hattin. Guy himself was captured. The relic of the true cross, the, the holiest relic in, in the Christian world, supposedly a big chunk of the cross on which Christ was being crucified, was seized by Saladin. Many of the crack troops, the Templars and Hospitallers, these are the sort of warrior monks, the SAS, Navy SEALs of the, of the Crusades, were captured and ritually beheaded. And then Jerusalem was taken by Saladin, as were a bunch of other very important cities in the Christian Crusader kingdom of Jerusalem, up to and including Acre, or Acre, the most important merchant city of the region. So that's what happens in 1187. And as I say, this is the this is the central event of Richard's life. And it really seems that God has sent a judgment on the entire Christian world by allowing them to lose the fragment of the true cross and the city of Jerusalem. And Richard is of this generation who whose entire worldview of what it means to be a Christian ruler is now shaped by the duty to go and sort this out and prove themselves worthy kings and this is going to be a sort of war of the worlds. it really really is and it, it comes within a whisker of being a, as successful as the first crusade and it is also the realization of what it means to richard to become a king it's now not going to be enough just to rule your kingdom your territories your plantagenet empire in the west you have to accept that your your duty is is also to the to christendom at large and the fact of the third crusade what is more than almost any other crusade a, a civilizational clash that's how it's pitched christianity against islam and the atrocities that that take place within it particularly richard's massacre of 3000 prisoners of war on the plain outside acca Although those are uh, barbaric acts, even in their own time, and certainly to us today, you have to understand them within their own context, within this context of a world in which this is the, the, the chief duty of the prince. You can't understand them any other way. Now, Dan, I mentioned earlier in my talk that the Crusades are framed now in this narrative that the local Islamic population was very settled and peaceful and civilised. And then these barbaric Westerners came in and brutalised the whole region. But that doesn't seem to be the whole story. There does seem to have been a lot of local conflict already going on before the Crusaders arrived. I mean, bringing peace to the Middle East is not a, <laughs> a novel project. The broader context of crusading is what is the reasons the Islamic chroniclers give for the first crusade in the 1090s having been a success was because the whole of the Islamic world of the Near East, by which I sort of mean Syria, wasn't it? Syria, Palestine, um, Egypt, was all at odds. And in some ways, the bigger and bloodier struggle within that region had had nothing to do with the crusaders at all. It had been uh, it had been an Islamic schism, the, the Shiite Sunni schism which still pervades today in the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Well, you had uh, Syria and Egypt, very roughly speaking, uh, at odds prior to the First Crusade. And that had continued. So at the moment that Saladin takes Jerusalem, this, this event that Richard and Philip Augustus and, and crew are going to revenge, you have to set that within Saladin's whole career, which had largely been taken up with uniting Syria and Egypt getting rid of the Fatimid caliphs in, in Cairo, 
fighting against other Muslims. This, so this isn't re- a, a place where everyone's kind of getting on and having a sort of merry time and going to <laughs> prayers five times a day until the Crusades come along. It, it's a place of endemic warfare, and it will continue to be a place of endemic warfare. And the Crusaders are absolutely nothing at all if you fast forward a hundred years or so and then see the arrival of the Khwarezmian Turks and who are driven west by the Mongols. I mean, when the Mongols arrive in this mm. world, forget the Crusaders. The Crusaders are like a, a gnat. <laughs> the Mongols are like a Lancaster bomber. There's no, I mean, this is there's orders of magnitude of difference. So I think in the West, we have this great squeamishness, which is not only rooted in what happened mm. in the Middle Ages, but is rooted in our sense of, of how the mo- modern world's empires have behaved. There's enormous squeamishness about the things that we, quote unquote, did, which is as ignorant and sort of blinkered historically mm. as having no squeamishness at all. You look at what the, what happens when the Mongols turn up in this yeah. area, and the Crusaders are, are pussycats compared to this. Now you say Richard got great fame for this, but was it seen as being a great success? I mean, it wasn't a total victory, was it? It was a, a qualified success. At the moment, Richard appears in um, in the Holy Land outside the siege of Acre. The siege is really at a tipping point, and had Philip Augustus and Richard not arrived to lend their weight to. The struggle for Acre, I think it's very unlikely that the Crusaders who were trying to besiege it would have succeeded. So Acre would not have been regained. And I think had Acre not been regained, it's very unlikely there would have been a meaningful future for the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem. Uh, it's it's sort of like, I don't know if any of your listeners are going to be rugby fans, but if you, if you see a small kind of mall on a field and then suddenly about eight of the forwards rush in and just push it over the line, that's that's yeah. a, a sporting analogy that will probably touch absolutely nobody who's listening. Um, but but this, they, they lend this critical mass to the siege of Acre. So Acre falls. That's very, 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 very important. And then Richard's march down from Acre south to Jaffa and then his turn uh, east towards Jerusalem um, lays the ground for the restoration of the the very important coastal cities in the Holy Land. His failure to take but he fails to take Jerusalem. Why, and why, so, why did he fail? What what went wrong there? He thought better of it or was, was advised better of it. They, they don't have the numbers. And even if they have the numbers to take Jerusalem, they don't they know they don't have the numbers to hold Jerusalem. And that's right. probably the bigger the bigger point. And that's that then becomes a waste of resources. And I think they just they they say, Okay, you know what? Everyone's had enough now. Why don't mm. we negotiate this truce, which they do very successfully with Aladdin, Safadin, Saladin's brother? Pause for a minute. Everyone, you know, it's half time. We'll have our go and have our oranges. I keep <laughs> lapsing into sporting uh, analogies. I see. Go home, and the plan really is go home. A couple of years, and we'll come back, and the fourth right. crusade will happen. Now, history tells us that's not quite what worked out. And when the fourth crusade happens, all bets are off because they go to Constantinople by mistake. But put that aside. <laughs> but when uh, Richard this... returns home, does he does he sell it as a success, as a victory? Well, events, dear boy. I mean, he, <laughs> the, he other, 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 other things happen on the way home. Yes. It changes the complexion absolutely of everything. And um, y- yes, he arrives home to something, eventually to something of a hero's welcome. But by the time he gets home, it's not like, wow, great, the Crusader's back. It's like, my God, he got out of prison at last. <laughs> and and, and th- that is all tied up with his relationship with um, Leopold, and uh, can you just yes. tell us a bit about the incident with Leopold's banner? It, it... 
yeah, absolutely. At at Acre when they um or Acre when they uh, when the city falls. So so what happens? So you've got these three major contingents, foreign contingents, let's say, by which I mean from Europe on mm. the Third Crusade: French, English, Germans. Leopold's in the German set. Now, what had happened uh, during the German progress towards the Kingdom of Jerusalem was that Frederick Barbarossa, the German emperor, Holy Roman emperor, sort of. We won't get into that. I know. I, um, I'm still trying to get uh, my head around just that. Not <laughs> this, this is the British monarchy. Let's not. The, the German emperor, <laughs> the, let's call him, has drowned in a river in Turkey. So, and then his son has also died. So Leopold mm. is like third third tier leader mm. and when richard and philip augustus arrive they massively outrank this duke yeah. of austria and there's uh, now on the way to crusade richard and philip augustus have also agreed between themselves they're going to divvy up the spoils of this crusade because they've invested quite a lot in it and so when leopold's men start hanging their banners up in acca when it falls um the richard's troops in particular run around and take them all down and in their eyes that's not unreasonable but of course it's quite humiliating to Leopold and Leopold it's humiliating to Leopold personally it's also a sort of slight against the Germans more generally saying you lot didn't pull your weight here this mm. is the English and the French bailing you out or, or whatever so it's but it is is it terribly misjudged Richard does have form for this sort of thing uh he's you know he's kind of done it to philip augustus on the way to the crusade in messina in sicily but it's it's very arrogant and it's not particularly sensitive but uh i think it's understandable and but it does just come back to bite richard in this very unlikely way the shipwreck yeah. the capture so on and so forth which makes a great story it's a fantastic story it's an absolutely <laughs> extraordinary story extraordinary story this business of of his capture his imprisonment his you know writing songs in his little castle yeah and, and it's and, and, it's it's amazing it's the stuff of it's the stuff of cartoons and but it's true it's what it's what happened all the legends that have grown up around his capture and captivity they feel like they're trying to glamorize what was i mean in some ways it was another classic english heroic failure and it seems to me that a lot of these stories are trying to big him up. Well, you know, Charlie, if you if you were to have the, the ill fortune to be captured, yes. things could go one of two ways. You know, you could uh, you could stay there, <laughs> you could make an unlike, you could dig a tunnel and get out. Or the, the middle ground is you could get yourself out of a pickle. And Richard gets himself out of a pickle. Don't forget, when Richard's mother was imprisoned, she stayed in prison for fifteen years. When Henry the First imprisoned Robert Curtos, man stayed in prison for thirty-five years until he died. Mm. You know, Richard, it's not. Um, yeah, but he didn't Richard, get himself so, okay, out, yes. did he? Poor old John had to raise huge amounts of money. Yes, they had to raise, raise huge amounts of money. It did, it, did, it did cost a lot of money, but it also, I mean, the, the reports of Richard when he's put on trial by Heinrich VI yeah. are that he. He performs magnificently, and he he earns the sort of the the respect of everyone around him. And particularly importantly, he sends a message to Philip Augustus and John that you know when I, I I'm not finished, 
I'm, I'm coming back. And that's that's the con, kind of context when Philip realizes, oh, God, this guy's actually, first of all, despite not having been in his kingdom for so long, he's retained the loyalty of his people to such a degree that they are prepared to pay to have him back, not just go, all right, we'll have John, that'll do. They, so he's, he's able to raise this money. Diplomatically, he's able to extract himself from this situation and come out allied with the guy, the most powerful ruler in Europe, Henry VI. And he's scared the bejesus out of Philip Augustus. Mm from jail this this rivalry don't forget i mean you're going to find out in the next episode that philip augustus is no like patsy this guy when he comes up against someone like john just wipes the floor with him richard has the has the you know has the better of philip augustus despite being in jail in a different country and that's why philip writes to john look to yourself the devil is loose okay here's here's just one thing that'll tell you Richard main, maintains his aura of majesty from his prison cell to such a degree that the minute he sets foot back in England and word gets round to the people who are holding castle to John, the guy holding the castle at St. Michael's Mount in Cornwall. Now, Richard lands in Kent. It's about 350 mm-hmm. miles away from St. Michael's Mount in the lovely bay of, outside Penzance. That guy hears Richard's back. He dies of shock. <laughs> okay, so, so I, don't, I don't think you can categorise this as heroic failure i think well, that this is like the this man just overcomes insurmountable odds apparently insurmountable odds again and again and again and again and is is uh he's an overachiever it's quite funny that uh, you started this saying what a terrible terrible man he was but now you're defending him how dare you say that about richard well because i'm sticking within the context of his times and that's just, <laughs> that's the second of the three elements of history we discussed at the beginning <laughs> am i going to put myself okay let, let me step into my kind of you know uh 21st century mindset yeah like do i want him around now i no thank you he didn't really do a lot of ruling in england did he no but then that this is this is super interesting in terms of what you presumably talked about with Henry II and are going to talk about with John. You've got to see this sort of Angevin first first two generations of the Plantagenets. Uh, you've got to take them together. Henry II does vanishingly little ruling in England either. He's around for about 20% of his own reign. Mm. Richard is around for somewhat less of his own reign. John is around for a lot of his own reign. And which one of them ends up in the biggest trouble? It's the one who's around all the time. Yeah. The, the Angevin early Plantagenet system of government works because the Henry II creates it, Richard maintains it. It's designed specifically for an absentee king. It's designed for an itinerant absentee king, somebody who's always on the move, always on the road, got these vast areas to, to rule. We'll, we'll pitch up once a year, once every couple of years, sort out what needs to be sorted out and then leaves it in the hands of competent people. So you've got, you've got a, a system, a functional system mm. in the hands of competent, well-appointed people. And Richard, just like his father, he makes some dodgy picks, but he makes some good picks as well. So Hubert Walter, for example, is Archbishop of Canterbury, is a, is a superbly competent guy. William of Coutance, who he sends back when he hears that John's causing trouble, very, very competent. Um, so he, he knows how to manage from afar and he also understands how to manage up close when he's around. Um, so the, the, the thing of not being there is kind of like that's how kingship works. And, and the big right. problems you will see with John are 
he has a system set up for an absentee king, and then he's there all the time. That's when you get you get this these political crises mm-hmm. that culminate in Magna Carta. So we've looked at these two moments in Richard's reign where the people of England were very heavily taxed. First, to finance the crusade, and secondly, to free him from captivity in Germany. But uh, can you just explain a bit how taxation works? I remember in the Disney film of Robin Hood, which they set during the time when Richard was away crusading, there's a lot about taxation. We see the wicked, greedy sheriff of Nottingham going into the peasants' homes and finding like a a penny hidden in someone's shoe and taking it from them. Now, I know this is going to sound like a stupid question, but how accurate was that film? I mean, what I mean is, who was taxed and who wasn't? Um, it's the opposite of a regressive tax. So the, the peasants with the, the court, forget it. Like, this is a lot of So it's really, it's the rich complaining about taxation. It's not the general peasantry. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's just beefing between oligarchs. That's how you have to see it. So right. when you get to Magna Carta, what you see is uh, this is this is not a, a thing for the people. The complaints are not for the people. So there are, there are various, just like there are today, there are various concurrent systems of taxation at play. Um, wealth and property taxes above all, and those are leveled at certain rates certain speak very crudely a, a certain amount a certain percentage of what yeah. your 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 wealth is assessed at, and when wealth is generally landed wealth in this era but it's a, there's a sort of parallel system of taxation which is kind of ad hoc um feudal incidents is the technical term so for example um if the king, this isn't applicable to Richard per se, but if the king's son is knighted or um, if there's uh, a sort of great event within the royal family, then the king has a right. It's, it's, it's a bit like in yeah. Monopoly. You can just you can just claim a, a tax off everybody for these <laughs> unusual incidents. And then there are, th- there are the it's sale your birthday. Offices. Yeah, so revenue, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly that. So there are these revenue-raising schemes as well, which is the sale of offices. Richard does make a lot of the sale of offices. So when he comes to the throne and he's decided he needs to raise money very fast to go on crusade, and he says famously, I would sell London if I could find a buyer. This is kind of ad hoc uh, form of taxation where he takes away lots of offices that are being held, like the office. So what would be a more accurate depiction than the sheriff going into the peasant's hut to, mm. to take a coin is the sheriff gets a letter that says you're fired. You can reapply for your own job, but if you want your own job, you have to pay me 3000, 3000 be too much. You have to pay me 500 pounds in order to have it back. And whoever, whoever comes into this will pay me 500 pounds. Or we might organize a sort of uh, like a bidding system where whoever offers me the most money to be the sheriff can be the sheriff. And then you, the sheriff, would go around exploiting every one of your revenue-raising schemes in order to make profit, make mm. back your investment in being a sheriff. So, and and this is not just sheriffs; it's bishops. It's um, you know there are there are big fees, fines levied for coming into if you inherit your father's earldom, for example, mm. you pay a big fine. Inheritance tax. Inheritance tax. What all of yeah. the plantagenets do, and it's and that's the the first the first thing they moan about in Magna Carta. Yeah. 
uh, is they all take these feudal levies and just jack them sky high mm. uh, because it's inflation proofs ordinary systems of taxation and you can just take a look at someone if you if you like now they don't always collect the money either so you can uh, it's often used as a system of political control so you can say okay you want to be you, you know your father's the earl of essex you're gonna be the earl of essex okay i'm charging two thousand pounds that's like let's mm. say that's a billion pounds today it doesn't really translate <laughs> but let's just say you're not gonna you're not gonna hold your hand out and say i want my billy you're gonna say don't forget you owe me a billion pounds right and if you don't do what i say i'll call that debt in so that's system of taxation it's and it's obviously enormously open to corrupt um exploitation and a little bit more complex than walt disney's animated robin hood film with talking animals i think what's interesting about richard and robin hood is the original robin hood stories are not set in richard's reign yeah they're set in the reign of, of a sort of king edward and it's but it's in the 16th century they just get kind of crunched back into this time of richard and john because this really does you know the it's the rivalry between Richard and John where you ha- you really yeah. do have historically a good king, brackets by the standards of the day, and a bad king, <laughs> brackets by the standards of the day. And they really do operate in um, in these, these kind of binary functions. And you have what's wonderful, I think, about the first two generations of the Plantagenets, a bit like the Tudors, are that you have this oftentimes what looks like a kitchen sink drama with massive national international repercussions and that's the sort of sweet spot for biography driven history and that's why i think these kings along as i say with the tudors are just so so endlessly fascinating and find their way into the myth and legend of britain as well as its history yeah yeah and the and and the robin hood story is a perfect fit for the reign of prince john because the local rulers the sheriff of nottingham a guy of gisborne whoever are corrupt but so is the man ruling the country, Prince John. He has no legitimacy. Therefore, it's all right to be on the side of the outlaws. It's the difference between law and justice, isn't it? You know, that the, the rely in a royal system, in any system of government, which, is, which has laws that it sets for its people, at the heart of it, a reliance on the, on the person in power to act properly. And the difference, that's the difference between tyranny and and monarchy. And what you have in John is somebody who is absolutely well-versed and expert in the workings of the law, just like his father, Henry II, and to a lesser extent like Richard, uh, and who is absolutely not interested in the slightest injustice. That's the key difference between law and justice. And that's when the system breaks down. You see the biggest problems are when there are kings who understand the law but have no interest in justice. Excellent. That would be a perfect place to end, but I do have one last question. (laughs) All right, Columbo. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which we may or may not get into. Um, And I probably, I think I probably know what the answer is probably going to be. But um, where do you stand on the rumours of Richard having an affair with the the King of France. Well, they all hang on one passing remark, which people just read according to whether they want to believe that Richard was gay or not. Well, exactly. It comes down to our modern sensibilities again, doesn't it? There's a novel I've got on my desk which has just come out, which is a sort of Gen Z love story between Richard and Philip, and I'm eager to read it. Um, <laughs> Slash because, fiction. Yeah. We're so fascinated by this at the moment. Um, ideas of, 
of sexuality, sexual fluidity are so in vogue at the moment that we can only look at this thing. They shared a bed and go, oh, my God, they must have been at it like rabbits. Yeah. No wonder Richard didn't have any kids. <laughs> but this is also in bed together has been English idiom for generations. The careful classification and delineation of different types of sexuality does not apply in the Middle Ages. But there were yes. men who loved men. That was also a thing. I had Tom Holland as a guest on the first episode, and, and we did talk a little bit about this idea of sort of imposing modern sensibilities on the past. And that actually, for me, the real fascination with looking back this far is not how similar people were, but how different people were. Yes, but we're such a solipsistic age at the moment that we want everyone to be a sort of version of ourselves because it's somehow affirming of our... And that, that, that speaks to a sort of lack of confidence in our own age. But I think it's safe to say that the idea of what is a good king has changed considerably since uh, since Richard's time. Yeah, look, I... Th not many of these monarchs would look at the monarchy as it exists today and recognise it as the thing in any form that they <laughs> were born into. Well, exactly. You're saying, you know, Richard's considered a great king because of all that he did, mainly militaristically. And yet all we want from our modern day monarchs is we love them. We want them to be there as long as they don't do anything. Yes. It's like a trophy wife. You're just there to, to look pretty and yeah. shut up. That's what we want out of monarchy. And um, we've sort of generally found in my lifetime um, that the members of the family who are prepared to accept uh, that, just stand there and look serious and, and open a fate, another fate and another hospital, that, yes. that works. And there have been people that they've understood that and found a way to dignify that extraordinarily boring job with, <laughs> with the language of duty and service to the nation yes. and fair play. Um, anyone who has a spark of, hey, what does this lever do if I pull it, uh, <laughs> is is generally pushed out of, of power, yeah. which is what's so interesting about the the, the current king, because it's his instinct is to grab the lever and pull it. Yes. Oh, that that sounds like trouble, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, you know... It, it, Don't it, touch it, the lever, mate! It spices <laughs> up the, the royal soap opera for us all. Yes, and what would what would royalty be without a, a dash of spice, Charlie? That's my special guest on this episode, Dan Jones. As I said before, if you really want to properly go into the story of King Richard, check out Dan's podcast, This Is History. Uh, and you also write historical fiction, don't you, Dan? Uh, you're writing a trilogy about the Hundred Years' War. The second one's out soon, and the first one is called Essex Dogs. That's right. That's right. Enjoy. Brilliant. And I won't get into it now, but it is a fascinating area of, of historians writing historical fiction and being able to actually write the bits that they would love to see in the actual historical records, but aren't there. My favourite bit. That's why we do it. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much, Dan. So we've talked quite a lot about John in this episode and indeed the one before. But in the next episode, we get the full, awful story of a man who is generally considered to be one of our worst kings. So make sure you come back to join me for that. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson. 2023.